Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Excorde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college. You can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. Today, I want to give you my ultimate advice about marriage, which is actually advice that I have come by after many, many years. Many, many years of marriage. It'll be 30 years this year. But actually, my work on marriage started when I was uh, affianced. Is that the right verb? To April Beingessner at the University of San Francisco in San Francisco, California. And I went to confession one day uh, with Father Plushkel, and I shared what I thought was a pretty routine confession. I said, I haven't helped out much around the house. I haven't done dishes. I said, I've held a grudge against my fiance. I said, I haven't called my mom in a couple weeks. I said a kind of a boring rote list of sins, and Father Plushkel stopped me and said, what did you say? I said, well, I didn't help around the house. I didn't call my mom. He said, no, 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 about your fiance. I said, oh, I held a grudge against my fiance for like a week, week and a half, where I was mad and I wouldn't tell her what was wrong. Uh, he said, son, you better get your moral life in order. You're going to be married, which shocked and surprised me. I thought, okay, I held a grudge, big deal, A, and B, I'm here in confession I'm not confessing anything terrible, any horrific mortal sins. So why are you convinced that I need to get my moral life in order in order to get married? But the words kind of stuck with me and gnawed at me for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I suddenly realized what an insanely stupid thing April Beingessner was doing of taking all the chips in her life, putting them on the spot marked Tom Hoops and saying, this is where I'm going to stake my life's bet. I'm going to bet my whole life that this is the right place for me to be. I thought, oh my gosh, how insanely stupid does somebody have to be to stake their whole life on Tom Hoops? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized how much was at risk in marriage. This woman is putting her whole life in my hands and I'm putting my whole life in her hands. And it caused myself and my wife to do things very differently from how we originally planned to. We were religious, we were Catholic, we were doing the whole religion thing, but we suddenly made it much more of a a focus to be intentional about the way we lived our marriage, not just prayer-wise, but in terms of our actions and our behavior. And after years of doing marriage preparation and marriage retreats, we have, much to our surprise, not develop the perfect marriage. We still struggle. And I think that's actually part of the problem, uh, part of the issue at hand in marriage. My daughter was just married over the weekend, and um, the priest had an awesome homily where he said, marriage is a ministry of offense, a ministry of offense. Uh, And he said, what marriage exists to do is to put two people in close proximity to offend each other, By offending each other, you will make each other more humble, and you will make each other more forgiving. Uh, I thought that was beautiful advice, and it actually dovetails very well with the ultimate marriage advice that I'm going to give you today, because the good news is 
there are only two obstacles to you having a wonderful, beautiful, excellent marriage. And if you can overcome these two obstacles, you will be set for life. Now, the first obstacle is you, and the second obstacle is your spouse. That's the bad news. Uh, You're an obstacle to your happiness because you're self-centered, you're egotistical, you look out for your own concerns, you expect uh, help from others, but you don't necessarily feel that you need to help them at the same level. Uh, Your pride becomes an issue, blinding yourself to faults that you have. You don't even see them. And so uh, you're a problem in your marriage. But the second obstacle to your marriage is your spouse. Your spouse is an obstacle because your spouse is self-centered and egotistical. Your spouse wants to be served and doesn't necessarily always want to serve you. Your spouse is proud and can't see the very clear faults that she or he has. Your spouse is continually disappointing to you and you're continually disappointing to your spouse. So how do you overcome these two obstacles to marriage? The way you overcome the first obstacle to your marriage, which is you, is charity. The way you overcome the second obstacle to your marriage, which is your spouse, is forgiveness. So let's start with charity and try to think of this in very practical ways, shall we? In a very practical way, I think it's true that to overcome the obstacle, which is yourself, you must practice two explicit, intentional acts of charity every day, at least two, right? Some days you'll hopefully do a lot more. Some days you'll be tempted to do fewer than two, uh, and you have to do at least two. So the first thing is to pray every day for your spouse. This is the first act of charity you must do. Or even better, uh, pray with your spouse. We were married by um, a great Jesuit, Father Arthur Swain, who gave our marriage homily and told us that he was commanding us to pray every day with each other at the kitchen table. He said, you won't have much furniture when you start out, but you'll at least have a kitchen table. Turned out he was wrong. We didn't even have that. But we sat down every day and we prayed things that we're thankful for and things that we're asking for. And it was hugely transformative. On days we aren't able to pray together, we pray for the other. Your spouse may be somebody who's willing to pray with you. And then if that's the case, you should do so. Your spouse may be someone who's unwilling to pray with you. That, if that's the case, then you should pray for them. The second way is an act of charity every day. Do uh, a good deed daily, as the Boy Scouts have it. Uh, so literally look out for something that you can do for your spouse every day. Now, everybody seems to have heard about Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. That's pretty much a classic in the self-help genre. And uh, everybody knows that you're supposed to do one of these five kinds of ways to love your spouse, which is words of affirmation, an act of service, uh, physical touch, a gift, and quality time, gift giving and quality time. I want to reveal to you the cheat that I have for the five love languages. Because, okay, so the premise of the book is everybody feels loved in a different way. And you may be showing love to your spouse by constantly affirming them with words of affirmation, but what they really want is for you to fix the door that needs, that's been broken for a year. Or what they really want is for you to notice that the bed needs to be made and start making it. So the idea here is to figure out 
which love language your partner speaks and uh, your marriage partner speaks and speak in that love language. My cheat for it is I think that everybody pretty much likes all five. This is a controversial opinion. My wife disagrees when I bring up this advice at marriage preparation, but um, and we kind of have some public bickering about it, which is part of marriage. But um, but what I do is I literally plan a different one for each day. So maybe on Monday, I'll look around the house and try to figure out something I can affirm. Often I'll ask one of the older kids, did mom like change her hair or do anything today that, that I should notice? And then I affirm that thing. I'll do an act of service on Tuesday. I'll change a light bulb. In fact, if the light bulb burns out on Sunday, I will wait till Tuesday to change it, which is probably not the best thing to do. But the way to do this is you have to wait till she's actually walking into the room and then change it such that she sees you change it because otherwise you don't get points for it. I don't, anyway, this is what I'm trying to be honest here, but you do an active service on Tuesday. I'll do a physical touch on Wednesday, you know, give her a back rub or rub her feet, tell her no strings attached. I'm just trying to like reach out to you here. Um, And then maybe bring flowers or another gift on Thursday, swing by the grocery store and get some of the best uh, grocery store flowers you can find. Sometimes they're not great, but you can find some good ones in there. And then um, plan quality time on Friday. Say, hey, we, let's just talk, right? So this is what I do. This is what I. This is my cheat to the five love languages. But it's important that I do something because it is astounding how much marriage improves your life. And so to work at it is extremely important, not just for your spouse, but for you as well. There is a uh, University of Michigan study that was published uh, couple years ago that reveals kind of the latest health benefits of marriage. Uh, There's lots of studies that say this is a Harvard Medical School study I've got here also, but they list the um, benefits of marriage. Married people live longer. They have fewer strokes and heart attacks. They suffer less depression. They're more likely to diagnose cancer early and therefore survive cancer longer. They tend to survive major operations better. Having another human being in your life is extremely important. However, we live in a time and in a culture where it is not easy for us to have another human being nearby us. Uh, We're experiencing a decline in marriage in the United States, fewer and fewer people getting married. But I think it's also related to the fact that we are experiencing a decline in department store shopping a decline in people going to neighborhood bars, and a decline in general in people talking face-to-face. People would much rather text or Zoom. I think that's because we are very frightened of being vulnerable to other people, and we've become individualistic to a fault. There's a why I'm single hashtag that I discovered on uh, Twitter a little while back, and uh, people were just basically giving reasons why they're single. One of them was, I value me time over we time. I never have to share the remote control, was what somebody else said. Uh, I like to sleep diagonally in my bed and don't want any interference, another person said. So I think that there's this real problem that we tend to be very defensive about our personal space. We are not in a place where we can um, bump up against other people easily. 
But precisely by bumping up against other people, we become who we are and we become resilient and we learn happiness. You can't learn happiness by eliminating all obstacles in your life. You only learn happiness, ironically, by facing obstacles in your life. I don't know if you've heard the song Being Alive by Stephen Sondheim, but he talks about how he is tired of being alone and wants to be alive. He needs someone to touch me too much, someone to know me too well, someone to pull me up short, someone to put me through hell, someone to sit in my chair. Uh, He goes through these lists of things that we have, these small irritations that we face when we're with other people that that turn out to be what makes us who we are. There's a a book called Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt that has some great examples of how this works in children's lives. He has this example of children who are allergic to nuts. If they're kept away from all contact with any peanuts, they tend to stay allergic longer and have more severe reactions, whereas kids who are not kept in peanut-free environments, their body tends to find coping mechanisms for dealing with peanuts in their lives. Kids who play outside more are healthier because they battle more microbes. They actually, having contact with other people, getting a little bit sick and getting over it, helps them in the long run. And it turns out that kids who interact mostly through social media tend to have a really hard time dealing with real people. So the more we can control our interactions with people, the less likely we're able to be happy when people invade our space. And that's super important, not just to have a happy marriage, but to have a happy life. There's this University of Chicago study that I really, really love that uh, they talked to 5,232 married adults at first during the 80s, and then they kept catching up with them after that. And uh, what they were doing was talking to these couples to see how satisfied they were with the other. So they would talk to these couples during engagement, during the first years of their marriage, and then they would catch up with them every five years or so. What they found is that spouses in a really unhappy marriage tend to separate. But among those unhappy marriages in which the spouses stayed together, two out of three reported that their marriage was happy five years later. Uh, Among those who rated their marriage very unhappy, 80% who stayed together were happy five years later. Uh, So those spouses who separated and divorced and remarried were on average no happier with their new spouse than than those who stuck with the first spouse. The analysts conducted focus group interviews with 55 of these formerly unhappy spouses to try to figure out what was going on. They said that they overcame their problems simply by reorganizing their schedules to spend more time together and by seeking help from relatives or from counseling. So by acts of charity and by the acts of charity of their relatives, they were able to overcome their problems. They also resigned themselves to lower expectations from their marriages and sought companionship rather than an intense happily ever after experience. I think this is a significant issue in marriages. We tend to idealize our spouse such that when we get married and have to live with them and see them close up, uh, we are disillusioned by seeing that, oh my gosh, they're actually a human being. They're not this perfect person who I created in my mind. Uh, That can be a very difficult transition to make, and it's by making that transition that these couples became happy with each other. Also, those couples who didn't divorce had, quotes, made a strong commitment to staying married. So basically, when you banish the idea that divorce is even an issue, is even a question, 
you are much more likely to stay married. And not only that, you're much more likely to be happy. So that's the first obstacle to marriage is you. And the first tool for dealing with that obstacle is charity. But of course, the second obstacle to your happy marriage is harder for you to control. And that is your spouse, right? The truth is that your spouse will do more kind, more loving, more sacrificial things for you in your life than anybody else, uh, including your parents in most cases. But your spouse will also offend you in small ways and large more than anyone else in your life. Your spouse will say things that hurt you more than anything else you've ever heard. This is why you need to be forgiving, truly, truly forgiving. You need to make forgiveness mandatory. Now, let me start out by saying I should note that there are truly abusive situations in marriage that you can't merely tolerate and forgive. When somebody is hurting you in a way that's making it difficult for your children to uh, lead a normal life, then you have to get away from that situation. That happens. It's not a, a moment for you to be heroic in forgiveness. It's a moment for you to be heroic in standing up for what's right and true. But I hasten to add, there are many situations that fall far short of abuse, which are nonetheless life-altering, severe disappointments in your life. Talk about situations where your husband or wife may make decisions that financially ruin you for a time or for a long time or for the rest of your life. Uh, your husband or wife may develop uh, a, a revulsion for somebody in your family that causes you great pain. Your husband and wife will almost certainly say things to you that cause you great pain on occasion, even if they're not you know, consistently emotionally abusive. And these are times when you have to say, I'm sorry. This is something my wife actually came up with. She, we actually made a rule of it. She would notice that when, in one of her first uh, jobs when, when we were married was in after-school care. And what would happen is Johnny and Susie would get into a fight. Johnny and Susie would be brought before her. And uh, it turns out Johnny started the fight or Susie started the fight. And you'd say, Johnny, say you're sorry. Johnny would say you're sorry. And Susie would say, okay. And then they would walk away. And she started to become less and less uh, satisfied with this response. She said, no, it's not okay that you hurt Susie. Susie, you have to say, I forgive you when somebody says, I'm sorry, because he hurt you and that was bad. And now you have to forgive that to move on. So then they, she started this rule where you have to say, I'm sorry if you did something wrong. And the other person has to say, I forgive you, right? So we made this a rule in our marriage uh, if you once you become conscious that you have done something wrong, you must, must, must say the words, I'm sorry. Once you hear the words, I'm sorry, you must, must, must say, I forgive you. Now, this is psychologically super important for starters. You need to hear somebody own up to what they did, and you need to hear somebody say the words, I forgive you. But we found we quickly had to make a corollary to our mercy rule, which is when you say, I'm sorry, you just have to be able to pronounce the words. You don't have to sound sorry, right? And when you say, I forgive you, you don't have to be an Oscar award caliber actress or actor. You just have to say the words, I forgive you. So that's the first way to deal with this. A second way is my um, Tolstoy rule, 
or better, my anti-Tolstoy rule. Tolstoy, in his uh, novel Anna Karenina, has this famous opening line, which drives me crazy. It says, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. This, from the very time I first heard it, didn't ring true to me. I know people will push back on this, but I'm absolutely convinced that it's 100% wrong. I'm thinking of three happy families right now that I know. One engages in intense sort of philosophical discussions at the dinner table that are frankly far beyond my own mental capacities. The children are brilliant because they have they have brilliant parents, but also because they are able to argue things in a dispassionate way that they've learned over repeated long conversations at the dinner table. There's another family that is uh, very involved in drama, both formally and informally that I'm thinking of. They have these intense, passionate, much more brief conversations uh, where they're always emotive. They're always, they, they, they have these brilliant barbs for one another and then they barb back and forth and then they're able to move on. Then there's a sweet, friendly, not exactly quiet, but not very raucous family that we know who um, will demolish you in a quiet, friendly way at ping pong, pool, chess, any board game, any game you play with them. Because what this family does is they're all sweet and friendly and kind, and they play games all the time, and they have this strong competitive desire. So what I'm trying to describe here is the happy families I know, I can see I could, they have their own character. They're, they're different from one another. They're, there's a whole different vibe in each of their houses, but it's, but it's very happy in each case. I'm also thinking of some unhappy families that I know. In each case, one or both of the spouses feels unfulfilled. You can see resentment of the other spouse, disappointment in the other spouse. Uh, And in each of the case, they tend to fill in their time with something that allows them to not have to talk to each other. Uh, It's usually some form of entertainment, whether it's video games or uh, social media or uh, Netflix binges. And in each of these cases... There's this deadening and draining atmosphere that the kids kind of have to exist under. And the kids are quiet and kind of off in their own corners because what's happened is that the center of their family is this kind of resentment and pain which can't be faced. And so everybody is just kind of quiet and moody and withdrawn. So unhappy families, I find, are not are all exactly the same. They're all these like walls of tension and pain that is really uncomfortable to be around. My wife and I worked, as I said, in marriage prep for many years. And I remember in uh, a previous state we lived in that um, a guy who was in our circle, he was actually part of our marriage prep team at one point, was going to divorce his wife. And he decided that he was going to take aside some of his friends, some of the people who knew him from this ministry and tell us why. So he I braced myself to hear the story of this uh, marriage. He said how terrible his wife had been his whole life and he was and I was bracing myself to hear the tale of woe of this horrible woman that he was married to who had done these terrible things but what he told was a story of small slights and a few larger ones he talked about likes and dislikes that he had that she had largely ignored she hadn't learned to make things the way he liked uh, she continued to make foods that he didn't like and failed to make foods that he had said that he liked for instance 
she hadn't taken time to get into the stuff that he wants to talk about. He always had to talk about what she wanted to talk about. She was only rarely bright and cheerful like he imagined everyone else's wife must be. Um, He begrudgingly admitted that she had tried to do some things. She would go on walks with him. She would invite his friends over. She was making an effort. And then it occurred to me that he was telling the story of my marriage and of every marriage. Uh, My wife could go through the same litany that he did. I haven't fixed the fault that she hates. I haven't done the important things I promised to do. I haven't taken the time to be interested in the things she's watching, and I tend to want to watch the thing I want to watch. I haven't learned to make things she likes, right? The only difference in my marriage and his marriage was mercy. My wife's faults didn't sum her up in my mind. I looked at the positive things she did instead. And she hadn't put my faults in the foreground of her thoughts about me. She had kept a vision of me that I fell short of often, but that she knew I could live up to at some point. She had kept a vision of the real me who she saw as a positive person and didn't let the sins that fall short of the real me change her definition of me. I think that the evidence is irrefutable that Tolstoy is absolutely incorrect when he says all happy families are alike and each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Because the only families that get to express their real differences are those that are forgiving. If you are an unforgiving family, you have to keep your head down, and so does everyone else. You have to avoid doing or saying the wrong thing that will set the other person off, so you can never express who you really are, because you have to hide that part of yourself, because it'll make the person mad, and the other person is doing the same thing around you. Unhappy families are those families that are fixated on injury. They're mired in the banality of sin. They're unwilling to move on. Happy families have been freed by mercy to be fully themselves. Maybe Tolstoy should have said, every unhappy family's sin wounds are alike. Each happy family has found mercy in its own way. I want to end by sharing some words that I wrote for my um, daughter's wedding. Not this most recent daughter. We've had a number of daughters married. Um, but I, I sat down to write these, you know, this little wedding toast, and uh, I quickly got out of hand. I published this as words I did not say at my daughter's wedding. So trust me, I went in a funny, lighthearted direction instead. But I sat down to write to her, uh, and what I came up with was the following. I said, I know what you can expect from your marriage. Intense joys followed quickly by intense sorrows, euphoria and rage deep comfort, and monumental irritation. You will be driven to the end of your limit and desperately want to quit. His boyish charm will become irresponsible immaturity. Your quiet charm will become maddening secretiveness. The sources of your love will become shallow pools. The arguments will come and it will seem like everything, joy, peace, happiness, the future, is at stake every time you argue. But if you hang on, And I pray to God you will hang on. If you hang on, you will find the amazing thing that follows the first phase of marriage. The irritations will remain, but will become background noise. Joy will take over the foreground, the joy that is only possible to those who have dedicated their lives to someone else and fought selfishness away with every ounce of their being. The fights will still come, but much less will be at stake. 
What will overwhelm you is not anger, but peace and gratitude for what you've been given. You and he are in love now, really and truly in love. I don't doubt it. And I have no doubt that your love for each other will grow to eclipse mine one day, but it has not yet. Your love is not greater than my love for your mother, and your love is not greater than her love for me. Not yet. Now you love each other enough to give your life away to the dream of what it can become. Later, you will have to keep giving your love away to the much lesser reality of what your life will actually be. Today, you see what's best in each other right away, and you quickly ignore the bad. Later, what is worst about each other will have defined many hours and days of your life, maybe months and years of your life, and you will love each other despite it, and together make what is best about each other far better than what it is now. Your disappointment in each other will become far more forgiving Your joy in each other will become more realistic, more subtle, and profound. Today, God has given you a glowing vision of your spouse and your spouse's true worth, and you are giving your lives to that vision. Later, he will take the glow away and ask you to give your life again. And if you do, you will be happier than you can possibly imagine right now. It can seem difficult, even impossible, to bind oneself to another human being for life, says the Catechism. But, quotes, Christ dwells with them, gives them the strength to take up their crosses and so follow him, to rise again after they have fallen, to forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, and to love one another with a supernatural, tender, and fruitful love, end quote. Marriage is like climbing an impossibly steep mountain, struggling up the side and getting tired and sick of it and finding you still have twice as far to go. It's a huge drag unless you do one thing. Look away from the mountain. Take in the unique vantage point you've been given. Below in the valley, you will see the lives of those who have shaped you and who you have shaped, and ahead you will see the beauty that calls you forward. And then the climb up the mountain will just be a conquest of ever greater heights. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.